Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Recognize that? Yep, it's from Shakespeare. Macbeth. Why am I reading Macbeth to start this episode? Well, that tiny bit of the famous speech from Macbeth has two separate types of repetition, which is our focus for this episode. The first type is simple repetition, and we have two instances, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and day to day. The second type is a repetition of opening sounds, petty pace. In this episode, we're also going to talk about a clever type of repetition, three types. Did you know repeating words proliferate in writing like guppies? Join in as we present three simple ways to capture reader interest and curiosity. Welcome to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee, with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Runes, all from Writers, Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, grab a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therockfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Chiasmus introduced us to the idea that repetition can be much more than simple words. The repetition of those single words will catch the reader's attention. When writers judiciously employ other repetitive techniques, however, we capture more than attention. We catch interest and curiosity. We can have fun with words. It's not only possible, it's practical. And it's especially practicable when we need emphasis. The Howeyman came riding, riding, riding up to the old indoor. That famous line is from Alfred Noyes, the Howeyman. Pick a key word. With repetition, the word becomes the key element. Here's Aldous Huxley. Experience is not what happens to you. It is what you do with what happens to you. Only the person who has faith in himself is able to be faithful to others. The famous Anonymous. From Wendell Phillips, what is defeat? Nothing but education. Nothing but the first step to something better. From Longfellow, we judge ourselves by what we feel capable of doing, while others judge us by what we have already done. And... Einstein, with a smidge of chiasmus. Not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. One statement of a word or phrase is not remarkable. Twice, which is a single repetition, seems coincidence. Thrice is serendipity. Several instances in one poem or story becomes deliberate. The Howeyman goes far beyond three repetitions. When this occurs, repetition will quickly become a gimmick, as we know from reading The Howeyman. A red-coat troop came marching, marching, marching up to the old indoors. From the midpoint of that narrative poem to the end, the repetition is overwhelming. The Scarlet Ibis by James Hurst opens with the unusual phrase of Clove of Seasons. We readers encounter other unusual phrasings, such as, Don't go leave me, brother which are repeated at key moments during the story. When we cross the repetition of Clove of Seasons, we know that the climax of the story is rapidly approaching. Here we have a master pen with repetitions in the story. We have multiples, but each is different and is only repeated once, not three times as Noise did. 
Here's Byron's We'll Go No More A-Roving. Notice how the repetition within the second stanza seems to tie the beginning and ending stanzas together, which are doubly tied by the repetition between them. So, we'll go no more a-roving, so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself have a rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. Byron's When We Two Parted also plays with repetition. The poem opens and closes, circular construction, with the phrase, in silence and tears. The powerful descriptions and repetition begin after the center. From stanza three, they know not I knew thee, who knew thee too well. Long, long shall I rue thee, too deeply to tell. And stanza four, in secret we met, in silence I grieve. When we play with simple repetition, we can enhance our words, stress our points, as long as we avoid gimmick. On to incremental repetition. An increment is a small amount. Incremental repetition is a small change at the next repeat of a word or phrase. Like an inchworm, the incremental change will alter slightly at each repetition. Here's a quick example from the Howieman with an alteration after the repeated words. And they shot him down on the highway, down like a dog on the highway. We have an alteration through addition to the repeated phrase. The slight change miraculously adds strength. Yet incremental repetition is more than simple addition. The old ballad Lord Randall is a perfect example of incremental repetition. Each stanza gradually advances the story, a conversation between mother and son. A slight change will occur in each stanza. That slight change is enough to advance the story. The ballad form creates an over-repetition which can be tiresome, just like Lord Randall becomes tiresome. I'll avoid the heavy dialect. Oh, where have you been, Lord Randall, my son? Oh, where have you been, my handsome young man? I have been to the wood, mother, make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. Where got you your dinner, Lord Randall, my son? Where got you your dinner, my handsome young man? I dined with my true love, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. What had you for dinner, Lord Randall, my son? What had you for dinner, my handsome young man? I had eels boiled in broth. Mother, make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. What became of your bloodhounds, Lord Randall, my son? Which she then repeats. Oh, they swelled and died, mother. Make my bed soon. For I'm weary with hunting, and fain would lie down. Oh, I fear you are poisoned, Lord Randall, my son. I fear you are poisoned, my handsome young man. Oh, yes, I am poisoned, mother. Make my bed soon. For I am weary with hunting, and fain would lie down. I think he's a little more weary with poison than he is with hunting. So stanza one lets us know that Randall's been hunting, and he's tired. Two, he had dinner with his true love, and now he's weary. Three, his dinner was eels boiled and broth, probably snakes with their venom. Stanza four, his hounds ate part of his dinner and have died. Stanza five, he's also poisoned, and he too will die. His true love is not his true love. In William Stafford's poem 15, 
a youth discovers a motorcycle on the side of the highway. The rider was flung off, but not seriously hurt. The youth sees the motorcycle as freedom, independence. When the biker rides away, he can only stand and watch as bike and biker and his dream of freedom disappear down the road. How is incremental repetition important in that poem? Each of the first three stanzas end with the words, I was 15. In the first, the phrase is a mere description. In the second, we understand the reason he doesn't take off on the motorbike. He's too young for a license. In the third, we sense his yearning to escape. The fourth stanza concludes with the biker heading away. After that stanza, Stafford adds a single line, I stood there, 15. We, the reader, empathize with the youth, remembering our own entrapment yet by a young age, our own disappointments, when that dream couldn't quite be grasped, not yet. My favorite example of a poem with incremental repetition is Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now. I'll put links to the lyrics and a video in the show notes. And I'll just summarize each stanza, pointing out the main images to avoid issues with copyright. The first stanza focuses on childhood innocence, and its primary image is clouds. Clouds represent childhood, when we had the time to lie on our backs and stare at the lazy summer passages and dream about the places we'll go. The shapes in the clouds transport us from our humdrum, droning days. I've looked at clouds that way. Big Puffy clouds herald rain and snow in winter, metaphors for the things of life that interfere with our clouds' illusions. Years beyond our childhood, we recall our lost dreams. Mitchell's last line in the refrain, I really don't know clouds at all, becomes especially poignant looking back with the jaded experience of our maturity. The line hints at how we went wrong. We didn't truly understand what we wanted, what our dream required, and what we would have to sacrifice. When a child dreams of what she wants, that child doesn't understand the devotion necessary to achieve it. In the second stanza of Mitchell's take on the seven ages of man, only she has three instead of seven, we have the daring emotions of young adulthood, and the primary image is love. Stanza two moves from child to a young adult, and the dizzy, dancing, mysterious glory of love, when everything is possible and nothing interferes. I've looked at love that way, she sings. Unfortunately, life interferes. The once upon a time fairy tale of happily ever after love rarely lasts. The glowing first rush of attraction is not sustainable. Hopefully, more than the pheromone-driven rush attracts a couple. Compatibility keeps the love recharged. Devotion helps it endure life's slings and arrows. This persona never gets past the demise of that fairy tale rush. She gives two pieces of advice. The first is a light-hearted mutual parting. Leave them laughing when you go. The second is for broken hearts. If you care, don't let them know. Broken dreams and bruised hearts build emotional walls that are difficult to break down. The persona says that love is give and take. Is that a mutual exchange? Or does one give while the other takes? When she laments about life's illusions, we understand the reason those relationships never worked. Stanza three is jaded maturity, and the primary image is life. How do we go forward with these emotional barracks constructed from the rubble of broken dreams and bruised hearts from the second stanza? 
Mitchell uses her incremental repetition to say, I've looked at life that way. Childhood, youth, and adult. Each stage has its dreams and disappointments. Mitchell reminds us that life will perform a balancing act. She wants us to look at the even-handed give and take of both sides. We gain when we accept the balance. Reality keeps us balanced. Illusions keep us going. Mitchell suggests tears and fears and feeling proud to say, I love you right out loud, yet that our hearts are damaged again. After a time, we guard ourselves from further pain. We try dreams and schemes and circus crowds only to have our glorious plans fall apart. Well, many friends see our emotional barriers, see our guarded hearts and discarded plans, and ask why we aren't reaching out. Have they not faced the same difficulties, or did they never dream? Have they contented themselves with life's first offerings? When that failed, maybe they struggled and moved on. So now they shake their heads when the persona won't give up on her dream. Now they say that she's out of step, that she's the one who changed. Mitchell shrugs off these judgments. She just wants a balanced win and lose life. After all, something's lost, but something's gained in living every day. See, that's Mitchell's truth. Don't drift. Happiness and heartaches will occur. Don't try to understand them. We can never understand the mystery of life and its illusions. Just live. We have three stanzas and one refrain. After each stanza with a bit of incremental repetition. I've looked at clouds. I've looked at love. I've looked at life. Mitchell's cleverness comes with the way each change matches its particular stanza. The first occurs when the white puffy clouds of childhood transition to the young adult's love and then the maturing adult's life. The changes reinforce the focus of each stage of life. Three stages for three wishes. In addition to incremental repetition, Mitchell employs two clever rhetorical devices, the polysyndeton and anaphora. A polysyndeton is using more conjunctions than would normally occur. The purpose is to slow down the progression of the line. In Mitchell's point, the polysyndeton stretches out the first line of each stanza, just as childhood, the beginning of love, and the launching into maturity seem to stretch out. From stanza one, bows and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air. From two, moons and dunes and ferris wheels. And from three, tears and fears and feeling proud. An anaphora is a phrase repeated at the beginning of a sentence or a stanza. We'll talk more about anaphoras in the next episode. Mitchell's first anaphora occurs at the beginning of each stanza in the second line with, I've looked. The sentence then continues with the predominant metaphorical topic of that stanza. Her second anaphora occurs on the third line of each stanza, which begins with, but now. Along with the repetition and the rhyme, these anaphoras tie the stanzas even more tightly. Both Sides Now is a clever exercise in William Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man, and simple repetition and sequences create powerful stanzas. Another kind of simple repetition is alliteration. It is more subtle than repeating words. Alliteration repeats opening sounds. It comes from the Latin A.D., which means to, and litera, letter or script. The word developed from the Latin allitera, which means to begin with the same letter. The classic example is the Chinese inchworm chewed the peach with a ch, Chinese inch, chewed peach. I don't particularly like the classic example, 
Alliteration is similar sounds in a short space on stressed syllables. This definition matches to the Latin etymology in the beginning with the same letter. Once we have several running similar sounds, then we can reach into words, the reason for my problem with the classic example. The definition also teaches that not all letters have the same sound. The sh sound is not the s sound, and other letters can make the sound. The c in space makes the required s sound. Another key element of alliteration is that the sounds must occur on stressed syllables, which are usually the first sounds of words. In the dark ages of my college years, I had a decrepit teacher who termed end rhyme as French rhyme and alliteration as English rhyme. I actually found those terms in use while working on my Master's of Arts in English degree, deep in the library stacks, pulling musty old books off shelves and sneezing to hunt information about Dante and Terzarima. I found English rhyme described in a whole chapter on types of rhyme. Old English is actually a dialect of Old German. Latin crept into the English around 400 AD. Then William the Conqueror caused the addition of French, which doubled the size of the English language. We English speakers have embraced other languages ever since. That quick detour into language history is necessary to understand the reason that old English poetry doesn't use endrime. Instead, it uses alliteration. If you have ever tried to rhyme more than a couple of lines, you understand how difficult end rhyme in English can be. It's a breeze in Spanish and French. Here's an example from Old English. Here I stand under streaming rain and blinding sleet stoned by hell freezes the frost and fall the snow on me stuck bellied. And I stick it all out for I cannot change the chance that made me. Our alliteration is stand, streaming, stone, those STs, and sleet, freeze, frost, fall, stuck, stick, change, chance, made, me. The Wife's Lament is one of the best-known poems in Old English, dependent on the alliteration, to tie the lines together. Racked rays in the first stanza, through followers a friendless wayfarer, out of woeful need in stanza two. And my mind so miserable, man for myself, so misfortunate and mind sorrowing in five, and on to the end. Alliteration is a subtle method of tying words together, but once you begin to look for the device, you find it constantly. While alliteration is used in Old English poetry, it's not limited to it. Many languages use alliteration, not just the Germanic-based ones. And alliteration is not time-bound to the Dark Ages. Tongue twisters are based on alliteration. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. And don't forget Susie selling sheet seashells. <laughs> Macbeth's famous speech, which we started with, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, has petty pace, dusty death, poor player, tell toad, struts and frets, starting alternating S and Fs into full of sound and fury to emphasize the concluding signifying nothing. The tragedy of Romeo and Juliet opens its prologue with From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Edgar Allan Poe plays with alliteration in The Raven, while I nodded nearly napping, in surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. Entreating entrance uses a vowel-consonant combination, 
deep into the darkness, doubting, dreaming dreams, and finally the raven itself, grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore. F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby has this strong example. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the night. Robert Frost, acquainted with the night, uses alliteration subtly. I have looked down the saddest city lane, L.N.S. I have passed by the watchman on his beat, the bee. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, S.T. and S. The advertising world loves alliteration. Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme, Best Buy, PayPal, and more. The best example, though, has to be Wilfred Owens's poem, and I have a soft spot in my heart for Wilfred Owens. He does rage so well, and then he turns around and writes this. Leaves, murmuring by myriads in the shimmering trees. Lives, wakening with wonder in the Pyrenees. Birds, cheerily chirping in the early day. Bards, singing of summer, scything through the hay. Bees shaking the heavy dews from bloom and frond, boys bursting the surface of the ebony pond, flashes of swimmers carving the sparkling cold, fleshes gleaming with wetness to the morning gold, a mead bordered about with warbling water brooks, a maid laughing the love laugh with me proud of looks, the heat throbbing between the upland and the peak, her heart quivering with passion to my pressed cheek. Braiding of floating flames across the mountain brow, brooding of stillness, and a sign of the bow. Stars of leaflets in the gloom, soft petal showers, stars expanding with the starred nocturnal flowers. That's from My Diary, July 1914. We're only part way through repetition. It's not as simple as we often think. Join us next week for more clever ways to repeat and thus emphasize your points. Inspiration this week comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson with two excellent examples of repetition in one statement. To believe your own thought. To believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. Thanks for listening to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by Emma Lee from Writers Inc. Books, assisted by Remy Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at winkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps. And you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.